I always gravitate more towards the teaching of world history than the history of my own country. U.S. history has always felt somewhat confining to me. If one begins with the Founding Fathers' Declaration of Independence, then you are responsible for 245 years of history over the course of 36 weeks. That's seven years of history that has to be diced up and served consistently each and every single week. That's essentially a two-term presidency each and every single week. Pacing frustrates me to no end in U.S. history, largely because each presidency isn't equally exciting. For every unit that personally interests me, such as the abolition era, there's another that bores me to tears, such as the debates over the National Bank. I don't care how exciting the musical Hamilton is, I still am not buying a book about the behind-the-scenes negotiations for our exceedingly complex banking system. World history, however, appeals to me. Part of it is the fact that it is impossible to hit all of the details regarding it. History itself is too vast to be contained in one setting. The best that we can do in world history is a survey. At the high school level, this helps to determine where individual interests lie. I don't have to bore the kids with the details about the intricate trade negotiations of ancient Egypt. Instead, I get to talk about mummies, pyramids, and war. The goal of world history is to be the hook that exposes the students to an entirely different world. Once hooked, they go on to dig into smaller sections of history, and it comes to life with details that have been easily glossed over or flat out ignored in a survey course. This is why there are so many books written about the same subjects. Each is able to continually turn over a new leaf to further reveal the story that has been hidden in front of us all along. The story of human history is so vast that it can be intimidating to just open the book's pages. The vastness of different cultures, eras, and events are what makes the study of history beloved by all who are willing to take an interest in it. But what happens when one culture is just as intimidating as the whole? What happens when one people's history seems too vast to undertake, too vast to even survey? That is the challenge one faces when they attempt to dive into Chinese history. China represents the longest continuous history of any country in the world, going back a full 3,500 years. Honestly, I am both incredibly curious and afraid of finding out how Chinese citizens learn their own history. Even if the current communist regime censors large chunks of it, there's no way to focus in on all of the history without skimping on some seriously major events. Like, I understand that the founding of the U.S. national banking system was important. It's just really, really boring, just like the entirety of the Taft administration. But as boring and monotonous that American history can appear to be, it's only 245 years. 415 years if you include the founding of the American colonies. I've always found that any U.S. history teacher adequately teaching the founding of our nation is going to run out of time around the pivotal 1970s, which is just about where it gets interesting for 17-year-olds. Chinese history is more than 3,000 years longer than that. 
the American Historical Association reaches across the ocean and takes a shot at the length of Chinese history by revealing that, quote, an old missionary student of China once remarked that Chinese history is remote, monotonous, obscure, and worst of all, there's too much of it. All of this is pure excuse building for what I am about to undertake, which is an incredibly difficult task. The focus of this series will be on Mao Zedong, the father of communist China, a man whose determination and vision paved the path for the Chinese Communist Party's continued rule today, a government whose reach is continually expanding through global diplomatic efforts. Their continued rule is also one that regularly poses a threat to American hegemony, and thus runs the risk of falling into the Thucydides trap, a theory which posits that the U.S. as the established power and the People's Republic of China as the rising power are in a collision course towards war. But as we focus on Mao, we'll attempt to include the portions of Chinese history that helped to produce the man that brought communism to the Far East, and the individuals who enabled, resisted, lived, and died under one of the most evil dictators in world history. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is about the life and legacy of China's most infamous dictator, Mao Zedong, his rise to power. With more than 3,000 years of history to cover, one has to take a few shortcuts. This means that out of necessity, we will be using a broad brush to paint the picture. A simple disclaimer here, broad brushes always color over individuals that swim against the current. That means that there is a guarantee that my generalizations will be as off to professional scholars as much as my pronunciation will be for many of the names that aren't the most famous in the story. But just like with pronunciation, you have my promise that I will make every effort to get the overall story correct. We'll start with one of the broadest brushes in my inventory. The entirety of Chinese history follows a basic 300-year dynastic cycle. Here's the overly generalized version. Step 1. A new ruler rises to power through military conquest. They emerge as the new power and establish a dynasty in the second step by passing their rule to their son. And yes, I mean son, as Chinese history is deeply paternalistic. Step three encompasses the next 50 to 100 years, during which time the new dynasty expands their territory through military conquest. Step four involves the Middle Ages of the dynasty. For the next 150 to 300 years, which on the far end encompasses the entirety of U.S. history, the regime settles down and avoids conflict whenever it is able to. That softening of their edge leads to step five, which is collapse through gradual decay and decline, upon which outside rulers seek the throne in order to restore the greatness of the kingdom. 
The first challenger oftentimes finds it too difficult to wrest the club from Hercules' hand. Thus, step six typically encompasses an average 50 years of chaos until the next ruler is able to establish their rule through military conquest, pass that throne to their son, who will expand the empire in order to make their name as great as their father's, but whom's grandchildren will be born to riches and a peace that breeds contentment. Only their grandchildren won't know the struggle that their luxuries were born from, and thus the decay sets in once more, until someone comes to topple them. There are exceptions to this 300-year dynastic cycle. The longest Chinese dynasty in Chinese history was the Zhou Dynasty, which lasted for 790 years. On the other end of the spectrum is the Qin Dynasty, which consisted of only two emperors lasting for a mere 15 years. But even the Qin Dynasty followed the pattern that I am weaving, but it was a massively accelerated timeline. It came to power riding on the back of 35 years of chaos that had set in at the tail end of the Zhou Dynasty. Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of the Qin Dynasty, defeated the last remnants of the Zhou, and along with his son, the second and last ruler of the dynasty, conquered six of the seven warring states vying for control of the Zhou's remaining scraps. During their 15 years in power, they began the Great Wall of China, started a national road system, and built a life-size terracotta army to mark the grave of the Qin Dynasty. As they stopped conquering, however, a popular revolt broke out and the empire weakened enough to make way for the Han Dynasty, the second longest dynasty in Chinese history, and the one that most consider to be the Golden Age of China. The Han Dynasty eventually went the way that all Chinese dynasties do, breaking down after a series of warlords fought to proclaim themselves as the next great series of rulers. Thus began a period of disunity until the pieces were put back together by the Sui. As you can see, we can go on and on, but we are just now around the year 600 AD. 2,000 years into the history of China's people. Not all Chinese dynasties were led by the Chinese. For instance, the incredibly successful Yuan dynasty was headed by a segment of Genghis Khan's Mongolian descendants. The dynasty that came prior to Mao Zedong's communist China was the Qing dynasty, which had begun in 1644. The early 1900s, when the events that today's podcast will focus on came to be, were nearly 300 years into the dynastic cycle. Anyone who knew their Chinese history would have known that the time was ripe for new ideas. They just likely didn't know that those ideas would emanate from the mind of a militant ex-principal of an elementary school. All historical dynasties suffer from excess ego. Just imagine the personality that is required to believe that you are in charge merely because your family was in charge before you. That worldview doesn't make room for any sort of meritocracy. Even among the ego-driven leaders of history, the Qing dynasty takes the cake. 
They viewed themselves as not just superior to the people that they led, but instead they viewed themselves as above every other kingdom in the world. This viewpoint is first and foremost among the reasons that the Chinese never directly competed with Europe during the Age of Exploration. After all, it's a bit ignorant to assume that the Europeans could sail around the entirety of the world before the Chinese could even get to Australia. China's Zheng He was one of the greatest explorers in world history. He sailed for the Ming Dynasty during step four of our oversimplified dynastic cycle. That's the stage where the dynasty suffers gradual decay. The decay had set in to such a point that the Ming Dynasty would soon be replaced by the Qing. But let's stick first with the legendary voyages of Zheng He. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue with three ships. Nearly 100 years earlier, from 1405 to 1433, Zheng He sailed as well. Seven voyages that traversed the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea, the Red Sea, past the yet unnamed Cape of Good Hope, and all the way to the east coast of Africa an area of the world that Vasco da Gama would visit in order to set up trading post cities in 1497. Portugal's da Gama wasn't even born for 30 years after Zhang was done sailing. If he had been allowed to sail just a little bit further, the Chinese would have landed in Spain. On his first voyage, he left with an incredible fleet of 208 vessels. 62 of which were laden with treasure. The rest were full of 27,800 crewmen. Unlike the predecessor of Mali's Mansa Musa, the African king who first sent 200 ships before summoning a massive fleet of 2,000 ships to cross the Atlantic, we know the end of Zhang's voyages. Each of the seven trips were a massive success. But rather than writing back to the monarchs of Spain that the indigenous peoples would make excellent servants, which was what Christopher Columbus did, Zheng He went to tell the world about the greatness of China, not to rob or enslave others. The 62 treasure ships were for bringing the riches of China to the peoples of the world. In their estimation, China didn't need to travel to far-off lands. They were already content with the land and riches that they had, both of which were incredibly vast and sought after by Europeans. Zheng He's exploration ended with the death of his emperor. The dynastic son viewed his diplomatic outreach as a waste and went so far as to destroy the details of the voyages, including the invaluable route maps that had been in Zheng's possession. China had tried diplomacy, but found the rewards in the 15th century to be lacking. Few, if any, of the civilizations contacted followed the emperor's invitation to come visit him at court. Europe just hadn't received any invitation, and after the publication of Marco Polo's work, Europe had become so desperate to reach the Spice Islands, which were south of China, that they were willing to let Columbus try his hand at crossing the Atlantic in order to get there quicker.
Even among the Chinese, the Qing viewed themselves in high regard. It was to such a degree that they demanded that every individual who came to China acknowledge their ruler as the Son of Heaven. On an international level, the Qing looked downward upon each and every other civilization with whom they had contact with, refusing to ever give in to anything that resembled a demand. To the Qing, there was China, and then came the rest of the world. The Qing again followed the dynastic pattern so common to China's history. It began with a multi-ethnic military agreement between units that included the Han, Manchurians, and remnants of the Mongols. It was the ruler's son who chose the name Qing for what would prove to be the dynasty of imperial China. 100 years into the formation of the dynasty, the Qing extended their territory through 10 great campaigns. This expansion successfully elevated the Qing to the status of the fourth largest empire in world history, and China became the world's most populous country for the first time. It has been a title that they've been unwilling to relinquish. But what goes up must inevitably come down. The dynastic decline soon followed. Foreign interference, internal revolts, corruption within the taxation system, slow economic growth, and rapid population increases all weakened the Qing. But it was the humiliation at the end that would be most remembered. Keep in mind that the Qing viewed themselves as vastly superior to all others. By the 1800s, European powers, including Great Britain and France, had sent fleets of trade ships in an attempt to open up Chinese goods to the West. In most instances, the Qing either offered incredibly one-sided deals or refused entry to the European travelers. This proved unacceptable to the rising powers of the Western Hemisphere. In what would become known as the Opium Wars, the East India Company and American merchants flooded China's private markets with cheap opium, an incredibly addictive drug. The Qing immediately witnessed the dangers inherent to the drug and attempted to outlaw it four separate times across four different decades spanning 100 years. In 1834, the Chinese even managed to seize and destroy 1,300 metric tons of opium in European warehouses. Showcasing a form of militant capitalism that had become commonplace in the wake of mercantilism, the British military attacked the Chinese and demanded reparations for the seizure of their drugs. The West's military overwhelmed the more populous Chinese, even though the battles were fought halfway around the world, isolated from their main forces. The Second Opium War began in much the same manner and resulted in another humiliating loss for the Qing's Son of Heaven. The losses paved the way for the unequal treaties, which ceded Chinese sovereignty over key portions of their own homeland, including granting the imperial nations the ability to freely navigate Chinese rivers as well as ownership over key harbor space. The West also demanded foreign extradition rights, 
which would allow them to take any Chinese citizen to their own judicial courts if they were accused of a crime. Next, the US-led open-door policy, which was designed to prevent China from being carved up in the same manner that Africa had, had the opposite effect. That policy demanded that China remain open to everyone, despite the fact that China wanted to remain closed to most. The Open Door Letter and subsequent policy ignored China's thoughts regarding its own territory. It treated the world's oldest civilization as a child, as if China were their unwanted ward. The humiliation severely weakened the position of the sitting government. The final straw for the Qing Dynasty was the Boxer Rebellion. In 1900, a group of Chinese martial arts specialists, whom the English referred to as Boxers, decided to rise up against foreign outside influence. The righteous and harmonious fists, as they referred to themselves, believed in a system of spiritual possession which involved the whirling of swords, dramatic prostrations, and the chanting of incantations to deities. It was their belief that the perfect motion and simultaneous pitch would successfully deflect any attack against them, including a bullet. Although the Boxer Rebellion will come to be known for its smashing of any and all things deemed foreign, particularly power lines, the harmonious fists believed that the primary devils that needed to be excised were the Christian missionaries that had flooded through the forcibly open doors of China. Despite some of the silliness inherent to the boxers, they did do some serious damage, such as besieging the foreign compounds in Beijing and bombarding them. The Empress Dowager, a title for the emperor's mother or widow, joined the boxers' movement after the Europeans refused to abandon their embassies. Military forces from eight nations, including Japan and the United States, came to end the siege and the boxers were swept away easily. The defeated Dowager was forced to sign the Boxer Protocol, which required the repayment of $330 million in reparations, plus interest, which made the final payment cross the billion-dollar line. China was forced to allow for permanent military divisions to reside in China, boxers were eradicated from the country, and the emperor of China, the son of heaven itself, was forced to apologize to the German emperor for the assassination of Baron von Kettler. Fifteen years later, the term Century of Humiliation would work its way into the lexicon of the Chinese, signifying a period between 1839 and 1949 where the sitting dynasty failed to assert Chinese dominance over the world. Their solution to deal with the problems was to ban the word revolution from their world history textbooks, permanently altering chapter titles from the French Revolution to the French chaos. Clearly, it was time for new leadership. As the dynastic cycle dictates, outside forces would arise in order to fight over the scraps of the formerly great empire. Sun Yat-sen emerged from the pack to become China's first official revolutionary. 
the Qing fought for a decade, but in 1912, the last emperor of the last dynasty, Puyi, the six-year-old son of heaven, abdicated the throne and ceded rule to Sun Yat-sen, who became the first president of China. Throughout China's history, however, the first to grab power isn't always the one that succeeds in creating a new dynasty. For that, they have to reach step two. The Republic of China formed in 1911 as a kingdom of many provinces that were largely governed by regional warlords rather than a strong centralized government. In 1914, world events once again overtake China as the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated, officially starting a process that would result in World War I. We'll pause the Chinese history lesson here in order to catch the main character in our story up to the events that will enable his rise to power. Mao Zedong was born on December 26, 1893 in Shaoshen, Hunan province. That makes him six years old during the Boxer Rebellion and a teenager during the fall of the Qing Dynasty. Shaoshen was a small hilly region in the southeast of modern-day China. His family was decently well off by the standards of Chinese peasantry. After serving in the army, Mao's father was able to purchase his family's land after it had been seized for unpaid debts. Mao never got along with his father, and once claimed that he had learned how to hate him. This severed relationship with his father can help explain some of Mao's initial distaste of capitalism. His father had gained economically at the expense of others who were less capable than he. Working connections, the elder Mao achieved the status of rich peasant, largely by buying up rice from desperate poor farmers in order to then flip the product to regional rice merchants. Thus, the family holdings continued to expand as his father bought up the mortgages of indebted peasants and then profited off of the interest payments. This desire to further his own family's wealth at the expense of his morals is likely what broke the relationship between father and son. It must have seemed to the young man that his father loved money more than his child. At age 13, Mao was pulled from school in order to help out the family full-time on the farm. While he had not been a particularly successful student, Mao was an obsessive reader. This likely points to the fact that he was more of a high-ability rather than a high-achieving student. The difference between the two is that the high-ability student is naturally smart and capable, but they have to feel interested or compelled in order to learn within the structures of a traditional school. High-achieving students may not be as naturally capable on a subject, but will work incredibly hard in order to please their superiors. Mao was a voracious reader who seemed to enjoy learning about subjects that interested him. Unfortunately, his school was extremely traditional and focused on conventional Confucian principles. Self-identifying his schooling as restricting, Mao would tell all whom he met that he had learned to hate Confucian teachings by the age of eight. 
During primary school, he claimed that his heroes went beyond traditional Chinese history and crossed cultural boundaries through his near worship of George Washington and Napoleon Bonaparte. Being pulled from school for a life on the farm wouldn't be enough for a dreamer such as Mao. Ross Terrell, a Mao biographer, points out the role his father played in the formation of his son's core personality, stating bluntly that Zedong's upbringing was secure. Other boys of the same era could expect less than Zedong got. He did not go hungry. His clothes were few, but they were not rags. His mother put order and dignity into the life of the household. Zedong's big problem was his father. His yearnings were of the spirit. Even though it didn't suit his fancy, Mao's habits were formed by his background as a regional farmer. Biographer Stuart Scram claimed that his early life shaped his absence of diplomatic skills, including a lack of social graces and of a concern either for comfort or appearances. Even late into his adult life, Mao refused to use a toothbrush and continued instead to wash out his mouth with tea. This left his teeth a green color. Mao's personal doctor of 22 years wrote a tell-all book two decades after Mao's death. In it, he reveals that Mao had horrific hygiene. He considered bathing a waste of time and was able to regularly pick the lice off of his body merely by the feel of them. He loved swimming, which was the only time that he submerged himself in cleansing water, having learned it in a local swimming hole adjacent to his family farm. When he was unable to get a swim in, he preferred to clean himself with a steaming towel rather than soap and water. Proving that his father didn't understand the boy's desires, he arranged for Mao's first marriage in 1907, when his son was just 14 years old. The match was made between fathers for him to wed Lao Zhezhu, a woman four years his elder. There's little known about this marriage, but according to Mao, it was entirely undesired and left unconsummated. Although he took part in the ceremony, he refused to talk to his wife, even during the two years that she lived under his father's roof with him. Mao had significantly more affection for his mother, Wen Kuomi, who was a traditionalist all the way down to her bound feet. Mao was her third child, but the first to survive past infancy. She loved her child and would regularly intervene when Mao's father set to beat him for any perceived break in discipline. The stubbornness of Mao was already legendary and contributed to his poor schooling record and disintegrating relationship with his father and his wife. Historian Zheng Sheng tells us that these traits, including a selfish streak, were always there from an early age. She writes that, In Mao's relationship with his mother, while she seems to have shown unconditional love and indulgence for him, his treatment of her combined strong feelings with selfishness. In later life, he told one of his closest staff a revealing story. When my mother was dying, he said, I told her I could not bear to see her looking in agony. I wanted to keep a beautiful image of her and told her I wanted to stay away for a while. My mother was a very understanding person and she agreed. 
So the image of my mother in my mind has always been and still is today a healthy and beautiful one. The implications behind this story are clear. On his mother's deathbed, the person who took priority in Mao's consideration was himself. All of this likely made it easy for him to abandon his father, mother, and wife, which he did at the age of 16. He convinced his father to pay the tuition for a boarding school that was 15 miles outside of his home province. This school focused on modern teachings and natural sciences rather than Confucian traditions. He excelled at the school, but was regularly bullied for being perceived as a country bumpkin. Biographer Stuart Scram claims that it was here that we can date the real beginnings of Mao's intellectual and political development, as he was exposed to new people, and more importantly, new ideas. He parlayed his successful start at the school to attend a new school in Shaksa, the capital of Hunan province. The move happened in 1911, a mere year before the Qing dynasty would officially abdicate the throne of China. Shangsa is described as a revolutionary hotspot, largely dedicated to the rise of Sun Yat-sen. Mao became an adherent to Yat-sen, largely via Sun's newspaper, The People's Independence. He was so infatuated that he published his first political essay in the school newspaper. School provided him a platform for his revolutionary instincts. He and his friends publicly cut off their pigtails, which were a sign of subservience to the emperor, and then went on to forcibly cut off those of several classmates. Outside the view of his father, there was no one to discipline the young Mao. When Sun Yat-sen rose, Mao joined him, volunteering as a soldier for the rebel army in the Xinhai Revolution. After the army was victorious in 1912, Mao resigned, having served for six months. There's no evidence that his service was significant to the outcome or that he was known to the leadership. All that is known is that Mao was willing to serve in the military when it was needed. If he had stayed in the periphery of Yat-sen, or had Yat-sen's rule lasted longer, Mao Zedong could have turned out radically different. The Xinhai Revolution advocated for Yat-sen's political philosophy, which centered on three modern ideals of nationalism, democracy, and people's livelihood. It was during this time in the military that he encountered socialist ideas for the first time. He wasn't an immediate convert, but remained interested and subscribed to socialist newspapers. Once out of the military, Mao lived the life of a lost college freshman. He tried his hand at becoming a police officer and a law student before taking classes at an economic school that only taught in English, a language that Mao did not speak. Even odder, he attempted to enroll in a soap production school. During this time of intellectual wandering, he liberally consumed some of the greatest intellectual work available in the world. He read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, which forms the basis for capitalism. He was also fond of state-of-nature philosophers, such as Montesquieu, John Stuart Mill, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He even consumed Darwin, 
making sure that his personal ideology would have some elements of only the strongest survive. His love of the library began when he was 18 years old and drifting through school as well as life. Mal writes that, I arranged a schedule of education of my own, which consisted of reading every day in the Hunan Provincial Library. I was very regular and conscientious about it, and the half year I spent in this way I consider to have been extremely valuable to me. During this period of self-education, I read many books, studied world geography and world history. There, for the first time, I saw and studied with great interest a map of the world. I read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations and Darwin's Origin of Species, and a book on ethics by John Stuart Mill. I read the works of Rousseau, Spencer's Logic, and a book on law by Montesquieu. I mixed poetry and romances and the tales of ancient Greece with serious studies of history and geography of Russia, Armenia, England, France, and other countries. Stephanie Kirks, a librarian who wrote about Mao's passion for the public space, tells us that Mao was at the library from the moment it opened until closing time every day. His only break was for two rice cakes at lunchtime each day. In this world, Mao could choose his subjects rather than have those choices dictated to him. He soon found a home in education, taking on the task of becoming an education major with a focus on history. A large portion of this decision was dedicated to money, or lack thereof. His father, who hadn't ever shared his son's love of learning, grew tired of paying the bills for a son who refused to declare a major. He cut off his tuition payments, and Mao was forced to move into a hostel, completely destitute. Despite this, he graduated with what is the equivalent of an undergraduate degree at the age of 25. Graduation day is in September of 1918 at this moment in history, which means that World War I has been ongoing for the past three and a half years. While he was a student, Mao took time to tour the Hunan province. It was during this time that he became critical of the imperial history of China regarding foreign interventions. From this would form the beginnings of his political manifesto, including two of his three big mountains that would be the basis for Mao's political future. Those mountains standing in China's way were imperialism, feudalism, and crony bureaucratic capitalism. During his schooling at the local teacher college, he joined and led student groups. He wrote on and spoke out against feudalism, the need for a restoration of traditional Chinese military virtues, the importance of individual initiative as well as conscious action. He founded the New People's Study Society, a group of 70 to 80 individuals, most of whom would go on to join the CCP after its forming. He also became connected for the first time with Chen Tuhua, the first official leader of the Chinese Communist Party. The Bolshevik collapse of Tsarist Russia occurred in November of 1917. The subsequent Russian Civil War ended in October of 1922. But the face of communism, Vladimir Lenin, was already incredibly active on the international stage. 
In September of 1918, one year after the October Revolution, Mao left his college in Shangsa for the big city of Beijing. Rather than putting his newly obtained teaching degree to use, he became an assistant in Beijing University's library. He was now getting paid to work inside an institution that he was so fond of. While working in Beijing, he came under the influence of Dr. Li Dashao and Chen Duji, both self-proclaimed Marxists and eventual founding members of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. The so-called mountain of imperialism was rooted in the reality that China, the world's oldest civilization, had been regularly bullied by the West. The May 1919 Paris Peace Conference would serve as another low mark during the Chinese century of humiliation. China played an important role for the Allies during World War I. Although they had started out neutral, China struck a deal with England in July of 1916 to supply 50,000 laborers for the war effort. The laborers were to be well paid by Chinese standards in order to clear mines, repair roads and railways, as well as building munition depots in the field. As you might imagine, the Chinese workers faced extreme prejudice, despite the importance of the work they were doing for the Allies. This can be illustrated by the fact that the Chinese laborers were typically not even allowed to interact with anyone outside of the labor camps. Despite the continuous affront to their honor, China officially declared war to Germany after a U-boat killed 543 workers headed to England via a stopover in Canada. The declaration of war occurred only four months after the American effort began. That official declaration should have been enough to earn China a seat at the peace negotiations with the specific goal of reducing Japan's sphere of influence. The Chinese military even took on Bolsheviks in Siberia in an effort to involve themselves in the Russian Civil War. Somewhere between 2,000 and 20,000 Chinese died in support of the Allies. However, they were only granted two seats at the Paris Peace Conference. Japan's delegation, on the other hand, was fully seated as a member of the alliance. They had declared war against Germany in 1914, and had participated in the military removal of Germany in the Pacific and from portions of China. There wasn't too much for them to do, however. The major pitched battle was the siege of a German-controlled Chinese port. And with a 6-to-1 advantage in manpower, the Japanese won easily. The two seated Chinese diplomats shot for the moon in an expectation that they would at least land among the stars. They asked for the return of the formerly held German portions of their nation. Additionally, they asked the Allies to remove their own extraterritorial control, guards, and foreign leaseholds. Thus, in one stroke, the Chinese asked to remove the French, British, and Americans from a land that they had controlled since the onset of the Opium Wars. Evidently, they asked for too much, and instead of merely refusing the claims, the Shandong Peninsula, which is geographically and historically a part of China, was gifted instead to China's historical archenemy, the Japanese. 
outrage over the decision sprung up across China in what became known as the student-led May 4th movement. Beijing, where Mao was living, was the epicenter of the protests. For two months, students protested, and they were almost immediately joined in solidarity across the country by workers who chose to strike as well. The protests covered more than 20 provinces and took place in over 100 cities. The government tried to arrest their way out of the embarrassing debacle. More than 1,000 students were sent behind bars, but rather than suppressing dissent, the actions of the May 4th movement strengthened the dormant force that was Chinese nationalism. The century of humiliation would soon prove to be something entirely of the past. The Chinese were now being led by the youth in an effort to rediscover their cultural pride within their history and the Chinese place within the world. Under pressure from their people, China became the lone participant from the Paris Peace Agreement that didn't sign the Treaty of Versailles. Rather than applauding the regime for acting in solidarity with the protesters, they denounced their own government for failing to obtain what they thought had already been paid for by the hard work and lives of tens of thousands of Chinese workers. Competitive nationalism, as in, we Chinese are so much better than the Japanese who couldn't even come up with their own written language and therefore stole ours, emerged in China. And soon, Japanese products were being boycotted across the nation. Mao was heavily involved in the May 4th movement, writing in 1919 with all the wisdom of a man in his 20s who believes that he's invincible. He states, The world is ours. The nation is ours. Society is ours. If we do not speak, who will speak? If we do not act, who will act? On the 20th anniversary of the movement's beginning, Mao wrote a newspaper article calling the movement a new stage in China's revolution against imperialism and feudalism, both of which were mountains that he felt needed to be overcome. Mao's philosophical thought wasn't yet fully developed, however. While he embraced red symbolism and the role of the military, both of which were seen in numerous Mao references to the army with the red flag, he didn't yet foresee a prominent place for the peasantry of rural China. For him, this was to be an intellectual revolution. While neither the movement nor the moment toppled the government of China, it had important long-lasting implications. The May 4th movement led to the new cultural movement. In this movement of intellectuals, democracy was looked down upon as a solution to societal ills. Communism, they argued, was the superior form of government. The movement also introduced vernacular Chinese, which made it possible for the lower rungs of society to read, which in turn granted them access to the writings of Mao and other contemporary Marxist thinkers. It also resulted in the successful reorganization of the nationalist Kuomotang party of Chiang Kai-shek and resulted in the eventual creation of the Kuomotang's temporary ally, the Chinese Communist Party. But the protest movement was only a start for those long-lasting effects. 
which would all require time for the embers of outrage to ignite into a revolutionary flame. Near the end of 1920, Mao returned to Shengsha, the capital of Hunan province, in order to become the principal of the Lin Shengshao Primary School. Showcasing the fact that he wasn't done with intellectual revolutionary thought, it only took him a month to form a socialist youth league for the school. He was married for the second time, although he argues that it was his first. Her name was Yang Kuhu, and she was the daughter of his former ethics teacher, once again serving up an example that Mao only seemed to learn the lessons that he wanted to learn. His father-in-law had become a father figure to him in all things. Going well beyond the role of an ethics instructor, Kwa He's father developed a friendship with a young Mao, and along with serving as the lead recommender for Mao's Beijing library job, he had him over to stay several times at his house. It was during one of those visits that Mao fell madly in love with the man's daughter. Mao was likely attracted to his future wife's natural instincts towards deviance. Rejecting Confucian traditions, she was labeled by her schoolmates as a rebel for her refusal to pray according to their standards, or to cut her hair short, which was tradition. Although the two were mutually interested in each other, Mao never made a move towards cementing the relationship until he had the means to support his would-be spouse. Highlighting the fact that he wasn't from money, however, the two were married without any formal ceremony or celebration. The happy couple would go on to produce two children together. Their love story won't end well, but that will be part of the next tale, during the life of Mao Zedong. And I promise that we will pick up the tale of this marriage during our discussion of the Long March. In 1921, though, Mao was an attendant at the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. It was here that the CCP, having grown out of study groups, was officially founded. The entire party had a membership that came in somewhere between 50 to 60 individuals. Mao was one of just two dozen delegates at the Congress. The party was easily manipulated at this early point in their history. Bolshevik Russian observers bullied the CCP into forming a political alliance with a nationalist party known as the Kuomintang. The thought was that both needed each other to have any chance at achieving power. And once in power, there was always the possibility of transforming the party from the inside out. Their alliance with the party of Sun Yat-sen was officially cemented in 1923. At this point, Mao was as deep into diapers as he was communist ideology, having two infants to raise. He took a break from family life during the winter of 1924-25, during which he witnessed the shooting of a number of peasants by foreign police in Shanghai. It was this incident that reportedly opened up the future dictator's eyes to the revolutionary possibilities of the peasantry, a social class which he himself had been born into. The role of the peasant at the head of the revolution would be one of the defining differences between Mao and fellow communists Marx and Lenin. Marx had a particular dismissive attitude towards peasants, instead choosing to believe that poor urban workers were the truly revolutionary class. 
In his writing, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, Marx compares France's peasantry to a sack of potatoes and claims that they are incapable of asserting their class interests in their own name, whether through a parliament or a convention. They cannot represent themselves. They must be represented. Organizing the peasants of Hunan province consumed the next few years of his life. A natural agitator, Mao was forced to flee from his home after angering a local warlord. He became the acting head of the propaganda department of the Nationalist Party, which had been actively recruiting peasants in an effort to swell their political power. Showcasing his love for academia, he began to edit the publication Political Weekly and served as principal for the Peasant Movement Training Institute. Soon, Mao would need to call on his former students in a fight against his nationalist allies. The looming fight was crystal clear to all who were paying attention. In March 1925, Sun Yat-sen, the father of modern China and the first leader of the Kuomintang, passed away. The respected statesman had fought his final battle in his war against gallbladder cancer. From its inception, Yat-sen's successor, Chiang Kai-shek, hadn't seen the need for the Kuomintang's alliance with the CCP. And within a year, the Chinese Civil War will begin and the ally-less CCP will be put on the run. Mao's second marriage will fall apart, his life will be threatened every single day for a year, and he will come out of it all as the unquestioned leader of the People's Republic of China. All of that and more regarding Mao Zedong's rise to power will be included in our next episode.